Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. In 2020, events have again shone a light on inequalities across the globe, and Australia is not an exception. 20 years on from the reconciliation walks of the year 2000, this nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind and in the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to the Elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. Mate, this is just impossible. Too many people were confused. Uh, You bet you are. Uh, You bet I am. I have always believed in miracles. That's not a policy. Not now, not ever. I mean... These comments are completely inappropriate. I'm sure she's right. But I ain't spending any time on it. How pathetic. You're a classic space invader. Disgusting, mud-sucking creatures. You should be ashamed of yourselves! Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Taste of democracy, very good. Hello and welcome to Democracy Sausage with Mark Kenny, brought to you from Policy Forum at Crawford School of Public Policy and with the support of the Australian Studies Institute and the School of Politics and International Relations. However, as many of you will have noticed, I'm not Mark Kenny. Mark is taking a well-deserved break within state borders, obviously, so you're saddled with me. I'm Martin Pearce and I'll be here for the next couple of weeks. I'll do my best to manage the Barbie in Mark's absence, but look, in all probability, you should expect your rissoles to be ruined, your burgers to be burnt, and your steaks to be some way from well done. But I'll do my best to ensure the pod is all sizzle and little fizzle. So what have we learned over the last week? Well, the good news is that Victoria's daily new infection numbers seem to be heading in the right direction, even if the increasing death toll, mainly from the crisis in aged care homes, seems to be stubbornly persistent. This weekend, that death toll hit a grim milestone of 500. That's 500 Australians whose lives have been taken prematurely and thousands of family and friends left grieving. By Sunday, 313 of those were aged care residents. Yet on Friday, the number was hard to recall for aged care minister Richard Colbeck at the Senate inquiry into the sector. It was a difficult day at the office for the minister who gave the kind of performance that, quite frankly, I'll be hoping to avoid over the next 45 minutes or so of this podcast. National Cabinet met on Friday and agreed to some measures to relax restrictions for those hard-hit border towns, but the increasingly assertive state leaders are digging their heels in about border restrictions more generally, which appear to be quite popular with voters. Victorian Premier Daniel Andrews continued his daily briefings to journalists. That's well beyond 50 days in a row now. He's lasted longer doing those daily press conferences than most people do with their gym memberships at this stage. Questions were raised about whether an already legislated superannuation rise will go ahead. Joel Fitzgibbon floated the idea of the Labour Party splitting in two and the Greens called for a power-sharing arrangement in the event of a hung parliament. Prime Minister Scott Morrison, meanwhile, said it was a week of hope because of fewer new cases in Victoria and the deal to purchase the Oxford vaccine if and when it becomes available. So joining me, as always, on the Monday Sausage is political scientist and director of the Australian Political Studies Centre, Dr Maria Tuflaga. Maria, did it feel like a week of hope to you? I don't think it was necessarily a week of hope for the, the government. Um, the government has had a pretty tough week, actually, if you look at it, like 
um, the the their attempts to sort of finesse their responsibility around the aged care crisis have clearly starting to backfire and has been, you know, I guess politely unseemly. Um, the growing economic uncertainty is obviously getting harder and harder to ignore and Labor is making some headway with this argument around when the wage subsidy should be uh, withdrawn. And to cap it all off, the week ended with some um, pretty uh, serious and devastating allegations of branch stacking in the Victorian um, Liberal Party right on the eve of the return to Parliament after two months of silence. So, no, I don't think I, – I don't imagine spirits are soaring in the Coalition Party room right now. I'm also delighted to be joined at the hot plate by two people who understand the inner workings of government and policy better than most. Joining us remotely is Dr. John Hewson. John is chair of the Tax and Transfer Policy Institute here at Crawford School and a former opposition leader. John, that week of hope comment was obviously an attempt to lift the national mood, but but does that kind of thing work with voters? Is simply telling them that things are getting better going to make them feel better? No, I don't think so. I can understand why the Prime Minister wants to create the impression that there is hope and he needs to do that because uh, some people have been doing it pretty tough now for many months. And of course, in Victoria, I guess the impact of the lockdowns has been really quite quite extreme on, on many people, many businesses, many communities and, and so on. But, I mean, it doesn't ring true when you've spent most of your career saying nope rather than hope, um, blocking boats and uh, cutting expenditure and holding uh, down the welfare sector or whatever role Morrison's had. Uh, I think, um, and, and secondly, of course, in the context of not having a recovery strategy. I mean, people are looking for a sense of where this country can and should be in, say, in the next couple of decades and how are we going to get there and how are we going to restore some sort of industrial base. It's a unique opportunity to reset uh, in so many ways, but the government is not taking that and um, to just say, oh, there's reason for hope. Well, there is re- the numbers have been better in Victoria, but, I mean, the pace at which this uh, virus spreads and uh, how it, it suddenly reappears, as we've seen in New Zealand, as we saw in Victoria, uh, I mean, there, there's a lot we don't know. We're still learning by doing in, in terms of dealing with the virus, let alone dealing with the economic consequences of the packages that were put in place and the social consequences that were put in place. Indeed, indeed. And last but certainly not least, it's a welcome back to the cosy but appropriately socially distanced surrounds of the Crawford Media Studio to Professor Quentin Grafton. Welcome, Quentin. You did some interviews last week on your modelling on hidden community transmission in Victoria, and it was a surprisingly high number. Can you tell us a little about that? Yeah, so this idea of hidden transmission is that it gets into particular communities and those people in those communities uh, choose not to get themselves tested even if they are feeling unwell. So that's the idea of hidden transmission. So the, 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 the basis of our contact tracing, testing and isolation system is that people who they are sick, they come symptomatic, they get themselves tested, they find out they're positive, negative, et cetera, et cetera. And of course, they isolate themselves. If you've got hidden transmission, it's it's a real nasty beast because that means someone can pass it on to somebody else. They don't necessarily uh, identify themselves as being sick, so they might go to work, et cetera, et cetera. So your household and, and work transmission. So that was certainly happening in Victoria, in Melbourne, I should say, Greater Melbourne, uh, from late May, early June, and it became evident uh, in the second half of June. And of course, we've now been struggling in all sorts of things, you know, first of all, postal codes, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And finally, uh, they did the right thing, as in the Victorian government, they imposed on August 6th that uh, – stage four lockdown for Melbourne, stage three for the state. And that's why we're getting these numbers falling and they've fallen dramatically. If you may recall from August 6th, the previous 24 hours, it was over 700 cases. Now we're in 118 today. I should warn everyone, uh, they're probably all aware of this. There's a long tail here. So although the numbers are falling substantially as we expected, as we predicted, nevertheless, there will be a long tail of numbers of uh, obviously smaller, it will get smaller over time. And it's not clear that we are going to get to a zero number by the uh, end of the uh, six-week 
lockdown. And in fact, um, I would say likely not. And it will take more time if we if that is the goal. If of no uh, no community transmission, it's 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 a longer way to go than uh, than has been uh, um, projected from the very start. Now, did the modelling tell us anything about how prevalent the virus might be in other states? The modelling is useful for predicting what might happen, and our modelling has done a pretty good job of that. But in terms of looking at other states, you really want to be looking at the data. And the data in New South Wales is much better now than it was uh, two weeks ago, but it's still uh, there is a worry. The worry is that there may well be some hidden transmission going on in a couple of hotspots. I'm not saying that is the case, but there is the worry that that might be the case, in particular in parts of Sydney. So I think we need another two or three more weeks to to breathe a sigh of relief that we pass that uh, that uh, that situation uh, in the context of other states and jurisdictions, then we don't have community transmission going on. Uh, the exception, of course, is Queensland uh, with a, a recent outbreak that was just identified in the last uh, 48 hours. So there, we're in a good state, relatively speaking, uh, compared to many other countries. For the people in Victoria and for the people in Melbourne, obviously, this is a, a long way to go. This is not something that's going to be resolved by the middle of September, I can assure you of that. And uh, so we're going to have to work hard if we want to get rid of this in terms of have no community transmission. If that's the goal, uh, we've got uh, ways to go. And I believe uh, that is the best way to go because we will, will avoid the sorts of things we've experienced in Victoria. We get on top of these things and we get them on top of them quickly, like New Zealand is doing. So in New Zealand, as John pointed out, there was a cluster in Auckland. They've got onto that quickly. Hopefully, we'll have to wait a couple more weeks, but hopefully they've, they've worked uh, within 24 hours. They uh, put a stage four, stage three lockdown in Auckland and stage two for the rest of the country. And I think that was the right thing to do. You don't wait two to three, four weeks. You act as soon as you possibly can. That's how you get on top of this. And then the sooner you, you, you lock things down and, and, uh, react, the sooner, of course, you can you can bring it back. And uh, that's the payoff. And that's why you get the economic gain associated with that. Okay, let's start today by talking about aged care. The aged care minister, Richard Colbeck, faced the Senate inquiry on Friday. Maria, what did you make of Richard Colbeck's performance? So the, the big news out of the Senate inquiry was uh, the sort of unfortunate moment that every minister dreads, or even a shadow minister for that matter, uh, when he was asked uh, if he could say how many people had died in federally regulated uh, private facilities, and he he couldn't find that uh, number, and um, and so you know we can understand that the minister is under an awful lot of pressure. Uh, but that is an entirely predictable question and um, one that he um, would have expected to be asked and I certainly assume his staff would have expected that he would be asked that. And unfortunately, in the context of uh, the government essentially trying to kind of make a sort of funny argument suggesting that whilst they might be responsible for regulating aged care, that the states are responsible for public health um, and that somehow sort of obfuscates or sort of lessens their responsibility, um, sort of not being able to sort of actually demonstrate really competently that they understand what the situation is on the ground in terms of the number of infections and deaths. It just adds to this sense of callousness around the handling uh, of this issue because, as we all know, aged care um, is has been a really difficult policy area for a long time because people haven't wanted to pay the true cost of what it costs to look after the elderly and because the profile of people going into aged care now are all have really complex needs. It's expensive and uh, this sort of model of using privatised aged care has essentially revealed itself to be insufficient to the task of providing dignity and, uh, and, and care uh, for some of our most vulnerable citizens. John, what did you make of uh, Richard Colbeck's performance on Friday? I mean, is it a big deal that he struggled to remember that number? I mean, clearly everyone in government is under a lot of stress. Should we be 
a bit more forgiving of things like that? No, look, I don't think so. I think it's reasonable, as was just said, that he should be sufficiently on top of the job to have those fingers, those figures at his fingertips. Um, look, I remember years ago when John Kerrin basically lost the role of treasurer because he couldn't remember, I think, was it Quentin? He couldn't remember the GDP number or something like that. I mean, it, you do need to demonstrate that you understand the portfolio when you're on top of it. In the terms of the debate in, in, in recent months, um, with all the revelations coming from the Aged Care Royal Commission and a whole lot of other you know, Four Corners programs and other things that have really highlighted the inadequacy of the treatment of aged in this country. Um, you know, and the government's at, at going to great lengths saying, well, we have responsibility for that and we have a plan, but there's no evidence that they've accepted that responsibility or that they actually have a plan. I mean, they talk a lot about responsibility. They accept actually very little of it. And, um, you know, you would think that there would be a plan after all this time in terms of how, you know, if there is to be a breakout, we've got some pretty early evidence that the breakouts would be could be concentrated in nursing homes. You think there'd be some strategy for dealing with it in the home, making sure that the staff are adequately trained, which a lot of them aren't in the existing homes, um, and they've got, they've got the right equipment and, um, you know, the hospitalisation. Uh, nursing homes aren't set up to really hospitalise or isolate people. Uh, that's one of the reasons why it spreads so quickly. I mean, there is no plan and um, it's no point just talking about it. People want to see that you, you've got an answer. And, of course, there have been many reviews of the aged care sector going back over the last couple of decades. Most of the recommendations have been ignored uh, and now we have this situation where almost on every front, in every element of aged care, we have a major a major failing, whether it's in the self-care units, whether it's in nursing homes, uh, whether it's... Um, you know, in um, the, the private, the pro- for-profit homes against against the not-for-profit homes or the government homes, I mean, the system is a mess. And um, you know, I think uh, in this in these circumstances, you would have expected a much more substantive response. So coming back to Colbeck, I mean, he's evidence of the fact that they really haven't done a lot of thinking. They're not really on top of the magnitude of the problem and the urgency of the problem. In those circumstances, I suspect to. Morrison will be under pressure to move him on. He'll resist it at all costs. The Howard model, you know, you don't ever own up to any of that anymore. You just let it go. It'll eventually disappear from the headlines. <laughs> but uh, people want action, and um, it's a tragedy when they're not getting it. Uh, the government came up with a strategy a few years ago of, of have home care packages, you know, give people the opportunity to stay in their homes longer rather than having to go to residential aged care. There's still over 100,000 people on the waiting list uh, for those packages. That's a very expensive inadequacy of the current system. I think the government did about 10,000 of them a few months ago and uh, it cost a, a large amount of money. It runs into billions to fix that aspect of the problem. So you don't really see a consistent strategy uh, either in terms of whether people should be kept at home, whether they can be kept at home, uh, the structure of residential aged care, how much is uh, should be government, how much should be private, how you constrain the operations of private operators to meet certain outcome standards. These are very big issues which are just being, you know, they're being ignored in the current debate. It's certainly a sector which which clearly needs a rethink. You know, and um, but Scott Morrison came out pretty soon after uh, that session on Friday and expressed confidence in his minister. And regular listeners to Policy Forum Pod, which I also present, will know that I never miss the opportunity to introduce a football analogy into discussions. And in football parlance, you know, if a team loses sort of 10 games on the trot, quite often you'll have the chairman of the club come out and express full confidence in his manager, which is usually a sign that the manager is getting sacked in the morning. So, John, is Scott Morrison's expression of confidence in uh, Richard Colbeck a sign? Is is it the dreaded vote of confidence? I, I think so. I'm a, for my faults and sins, I'm a supporter of the St George Rugby League Club. And we've just been through this period where the coach, Mary, <laughs> was, as they call him, was, uh, was always, you know, one loss after another. It was inevitable that he'd go. Finally, he went after the expression of full confidence in him. So, you know, it's as you say, um, Martin, this is, uh, you know, a, a bit of a management strategy rather than addressing the reality. 
But the reality is, you know, the government should be really quite decisive now. You would expect, I think most people would expect that they would, if they didn't have a plan, they'd, they'd develop one quickly. They'd bring out the detail of it. They'd show that they're concerned. They'd start to be operating on each of the elements of the problem, which are, and as we said, are many elements in the aged care sector that need to be dealt with. But to just try and uh, fob it off, so I have confidence in the minister, we have a plan, uh, you know, it doesn't ring true, does it? And it's that lack of authenticity in what's being said that in the end will hurt them. Well, Parliament is returning this week and um, so, of course, the this you know uh, the age minister will be under a lot of pressure. He's a senator, so there'll be a big focus on Senate question time, Which, but actually for, for the Prime Minister that makes it a bit more difficult for him because it means that he's more likely to be fielding questions in the House of Representatives on the questions of aged care. And there are a number of difficulties in this in that the government's own documents say, well, we're responsible for aged um, care when the pandemic sort of started and, and it basically goes to what John has sort of said. But I think, you know, John talked about home care packages and some of the problems we see in privatised aged care, we actually see in uh, the cost of delivering services um to people in their homes. Like once again, competition has been introduced into this uh, model. And so, and, you know, it's a low paid workforce. You know, these workers aren't even paid for the time it takes for them to travel from one location to another. Uh, There have been reports around uh, PPE arrangements in nursing homes where people were provided with you know, two masks for a whole shift and uh, similar concerns are being raised by unions around home delivery uh, packages and services. And, and, and John is absolutely right. And I think the reason why they don't have a plan is because the scale of the problem is so enormous um, and it would require spending an awful lot of money and Part of you doesn't really want governments to just go out there and just spend a lot of money so they can say we've spent a lot of money and we're fixing it. Um, but this has just been left to fester for such a long time um, and now it's under the pressure of, of a pandemic that the sort of systems of governments can't really respond fast enough to kind of deal with this this crisis. Look, it's not about a minister getting it wrong in a Senate uh, estimates and not answering a question. This is about a government responsibility. And the government was fully informed back in April that they were inadequately prepared, even though they claimed they had a plan back in March. And so what does that mean? A plan is a piece of paper, but a plan has to be acted on. It has to have expenditures and it has to have people involved. The people actually go and work in the retirement locations. They had to have been funded. So if they were sick uh, and they got tested or if they got tested and they weren't sick, that they were able to, to get paid. The number of things should have happened and did not happen. And they should be held accountable for that. And it's worth reminding everybody that there are more than 300 or approximately, it's just over 300 at the moment, have died in these facilities. Okay. And they have died recently as well. We see the death toll happening right now in Victoria. So it's not February. We're in August now. We have the opportunity, have the time to fix this in April and May, and we did not. We as a country did not do that. We must be held accountable for it. Ministers must be held accountable. Government and governments must be held accountable. People died because people did not choose to make the expenditures and do the necessary, even though they were advised that is exactly what they should have done. Now, I do want to go to a break in a second, but before we do that, John, I'd be keen to pick your brain about superannuation. We know that the rise is already legislated to come in next year, but there was some talk last week about it not now going ahead. What what are your views on this? Will it go ahead? Should it? Well, there are two perspectives on this. Of course, when, when we really have such high levels of unemployment and wages have been flat for as long as they have, prospectively, both those things are going to stay where they are or get worse. Uh, there's a, a lot of short-term pressure on governments to say you've got to do something about this situation, uh, could be creating jobs on the one front and, and finding a mechanism by which wages will increase over time. But separate to that, and more importantly, I think, superannuation is a longer-term structural challenge. Uh, we are uh, The motivation is, of course, to um, put the average worker in a position that when they retire, they can afford that retirement. They can live on a reasonable percentage of, if you like, of their final wage. So that is a process that has to be generated over time. 
And uh, unfortunately, this uh, guarantee levy, superannuation guarantee levy, has been a matter of short-term political debate rather than, uh, and which has lost sight, I guess, of the longer-term structural demands of superannuation. So as tough as it is to say, look, I'm not going to, we are going to go ahead and continue to raise it according to the legislation, um, I think that's what the government should do. Okay, well, that sounds like a good point to take a break. So join us for more after these messages. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. So welcome back. I want to move on to talking about the vaccine, uh, the Oxford vaccine. Scott Morrison announced a letter of intent to purchase that if and when it gets through its clinical trials. And he was asked the question of whether it should be mandatory for Australians and managed to give almost every possible position on that question over the course of about a 12-hour period. Quentin, should something like that be mandatory for people? My view is not that I think the better approach is to use education, engage with people, explain what this vaccine does and doesn't do, and have that moral suasion and have a whole range of people, not just politicians, a whole range of leading Australians, you know, from all sorts of different walks of life, engaging with us and telling us why we should do it and make it easier for us to get vaccinated. We have to get a high rate of vaccination for this to work. We don't know how effective the vaccine is going to be, so we can only speculate on that. But the Prime Minister is correct in saying that we need to be going for a 90, 95% goal. Whether we get there is another matter. So that would be the first strategy. If we fail completely um, with that communication, et cetera, et cetera, then we can think about a plan B. But that would be my plan A, is not to make it mandatory and do our very best to get everybody on board and vaccinated. And of course, there needs to be the the, the, the medical people, the people in the front line, the essential workers, those sorts of people would need to get vaccinated. First, of course, there needs to be a priority. And of course, people over a certain age, more vulnerable people would have to be treated as a priority as well. And then we would go uh, down the list, so to speak. Yeah, all the evidence around um anti-vaxxers or trying to persuade people who have an anti-vax position uh, does point to the fact that usually it's just that people don't really understand how vaccines work. Uh, There's a lack of collective memory of, you know, children dying of measles, for example, Um, like there would have been in the 1950s where children died. Um, And most people will actually respond really positively to a discussion, an explicit discussion with their their GP. And so, you know, those kinds of nudges around no jab, no play are effectively there to basically push people to go and have that conversation with their GP. But you will always have a small percentage of the population that refuses um, vaccination. And I think by making it compulsory, all you do is elevate this into a rights debate where it's, it's not actually a rights debate. It's, you know, it can be, but it oughtn't to be. And so, the, you know, I think there's so many things to happen first before we even need to go down the road of compulsion. John, why do you think uh, Scott Morrison struggled so much to answer that question about whether it should be mandatory or not? I mean, surely in the planning around that announcement, that would have been one of the things that they had thought about. You, you would think so, although in a sense, the way the question was asked, I guess he felt he got caught short. Um, look, it's a difficult issue. It's one of those emotive issues. And uh, as was said, um, we you know, it's easy to become a rights issue rather than a health issue. And, and that's, that, that's a problem. I, I agree with what was said. We need to rely heavily on education to explain to people 
what the opportunity is with a vaccine. I don't think you should be unreal in terms of promising a, a sort of a silver bullet result because it won't be. I mean, as Anthony Fauci said in the US, I mean, it's 50% um, protection would probably be a, good, a reasonable aim for, for any vaccine and we're a long way away from actually having an effective vaccine. I mean, we still don't have an effective vaccine for the common cold. It's possible that we won't get one, although there will be, there will, there will be vaccines, I suppose, that have uh, offered limited offer limited protection and, of course, then they rely on the rest of the population to have had it and survived it and built some immunity from it. But these are tough questions, I think, in terms of your specific question on Morrison. I'm surprised he just didn't have a view which was along these lines. We'll we'll focus uh, as Plan A on education. We'll argue the case. We'll demonstrate what the benefits would be uh, and so on. But um, he was sort of trying to use, I think, the whole issue of a vaccine as a bit of a distraction from his aged care problems saying he had this uh, wonderful deal with AstraZeneca, which uh, really was just an intention. <laughs> it wasn't a deal. There were no price or quantity or timing or anything, uh, as there wouldn't be. And, um, you know, to exaggerate the significance of that, I think he left himself open. Maria, you mentioned there will always be kind of small numbers of sort of anti-vaxxers and things like that. There was a, I wonder what you made of the recent YouGov poll in the UK that showed 16% of Britons either wouldn't or probably wouldn't have a vaccine if it's developed. Is that that kind of small number that you're talking about? Or does one in six represent a slightly larger and more concerning number? So I guess what the real question is, is what is motivating those 16% of Britons uh, to not want to to get vaccinated? Um, and how many or what percentage of that 16% given, given the opportunity to sit down with a trusted medical advisor would actually change their mind? I mean, I would imagine that the vast majority would probably be um, persuadable and, you know, you'd always have that small uh, minority that just, just won't no matter um, – what I do think what John just sort of said about the Prime Minister, uh, I guess, leaning into this debate um, to sort of provide, I guess, a sort of cover for or, or an, another talking point around some of the difficulties they've had this week is is probably um, what's kind of gone on here. And um, it is interesting for a government that is really focused on um, on on messaging and on communicating, uh, you know, what they're kind of doing that. That they hadn't actually wargamed that. I thought that was a bit, that was a bit unusual because usually Morrison is much more, um, uh, sort of prepared on those levels. But I guess it sort of does show his kind of reflexing tough guy image that he likes to project, you know, uh, to the community on these issues that he'll do what it takes. All right. So let's move on to talk about National Cabinet, which met on Friday. Uh, the states have become increasingly assertive and sort of muscular in their stances during the coronavirus crisis. Quentin, do you think uh, Scott Morrison regrets the decision to create the National Cabinet? <laughs> I don't think so. I think he would view that as one of his great successes. And so when we were leading in the context of suppression, I think he was taking the credit for National Cabinet in terms of decisions that were made. And, uh, and of course, if uh, decisions are, are not made or decisions that he doesn't like or perhaps some people don't like, then he's got the option to always uh, post um, push that to the state. So he's got a, he can win both ways, uh, so to speak. So uh, in terms of, in terms of uh, premiers not agreeing with the prime minister, we've, we've always had that. Uh, so the, the, the problem with this issue, of course, is that uh, uh, there are lives at stake and, uh, and you can see why a premier will push back to a prime minister in these sorts of situations. And, uh, and I think that's fine. I think it's good to have healthy debate and dialogue uh, at that level indeed at any level and uh, if they have differences of opinion so be it and uh, we're not uh, we are a nation that is uh, in different jurisdictions and uh, that's how it was set up and uh, and I think that's uh, that's good uh, we have some coordination problems along the way but but that I think is is is, is good uh, I wouldn't want us to make every decision out of Canberra yeah I, I think the discussion around the national cabinet has been really quite fascinating like it's often sort of been discussed in the context of um well this is the death of coag but i i mean i i question this i mean the national cabinet to me um has sort of served a, a, a political function which 
Quinton just alluded to, right? It's, you know, Scott Morrison was um, trying to keep the economy open back in March and effectively being outmaneuvered by the fact that he was unable to force the states to do what he wanted. And arguably, um, I think I think everyone would kind of acknowledge that they were perhaps a little too optimistic about um, containment then and um, that, that the premiers um, had done him a favour. But the idea that the National Cabinet um, will, over the long run, necessarily displace COAG um, I question whether or not that's really going to happen. And even if it does, that it won't grow all the government machinery that COAG simply had. Because realistically, what the National Cabinet is, is it's a way for these uh, party leaders to confer, to agree positions in a crisis. And um, and yes, you know, oh, it, it's sort of like, you know, exploded through roadblocks and all of this kind of stuff because it's a crisis. It's not because there is anything special about this group of people or this form of coordination. It's just that these decisions have to be made urgently and so roadblocks will be pushed through because they are simply urgent. As a model for long-term reform in Australia, it may work, but the idea that you won't have all of that significant negotiation between states beforehand in some form or in the COAG form I think is just kind of – um, well, naive. That's not going to happen. And what the National Cabinet ultimately shows, and uh, and I think Scott Morrison has used it brilliantly as a way of cutting out the opposition from discussion, not holding parliament certainly helps with that. But, you know, what it ultimately shows is that when it comes to health, the state governments have all the power. And even though Scott Morrison has the checkbook, it's not like he's going to deny the money for that because he couldn't possibly. And whilst they are very frustrated that the economy has been shut down and they're sort of saying, saying, well, you'll have to throw your own money in. The Commonwealth government is ultimately going to be held responsible for that. So they're they're going to have to stimulate the economy if they want to look good. They can't blame the premiers because ultimately everyone will say, well, you're the government, you're the federal government, you look after the economy. I trusted you to do that and you didn't do it because you were upset about the politics of it. So I think the politics of this whole um uh, of the national cabinet, exactly how it functions, whether or not it actually survives, um, is about to get a whole lot more interesting. John, what's your take on all this? Uh, look, I, I agree with a lot of what's been said. I mean, it's not that much of an extension of COAG to my mind. I mean, it's a, it was a genuine attempt to coordinate and collaborate in response to a, an unexpected um, pandemic of, of much greater severity as it un, unfolded than and they imagined, and initially, of course, it did play that that role quite well. Although the differences between the Commonwealth and the states are always there. When you've got overlapping or responsibilities, duplication, and so on, you are ripe for you know the blame game, which is what we see from time to time. I mean, the states have been fairly firm; they've got much firmer as time's gone on in terms of defence of their position, calling the, the shots for what they are, <clears throat> but. Um, you know, it's become very populist now from the point of view of some states. I mean, the insane comment that that uh, Palaszczuk made the other day about how, uh, <coughs> excuse me, Queensland hospitals for, for Queenslanders, you know, takes takes that populism to an extreme. I'm hoping, though, that the states do use it constructively moving into the future, where they have a much bigger say on the recovery strategy, a bigger say on... Um, Maybe an edit, <coughs> excuse me, the development of an energy strategy and so on. All right. So I want to move on to talking about uh, Joe Biden's uh, acceptance speech as the uh, Democratic nomination. Quentin, what did you make of it? I didn't uh, see the speech, so I can't add much to this conversation except that uh, everyone is sort of hoping that uh, uh, people will vote for Biden because he's not Trump. And I think there's a lot of hope and the polls suggest that will happen. But I'm uh, somewhat skeptical. So I I hope they're correct. (laughs) But um, I think they've got to do more than simply say we're not Trump and we're with they need to have some positive messaging. And it's not so clear going back to some of the 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 presentations at that convention, that they're in the right uh, space for that. But we'll see. Uh, you know, it's uh, it's uh, just a few weeks away. It's early November that we've got that um, that vote. So we'll see where we go. John, do you think Australian conservatives will uh, throw their weight behind supporting Biden or will they support 
Trump? And if so, what does that say about the state of conservative politics in Australia? Well, there's some conservatives in the Murdoch camp and um, among the media and some of the extreme right, I suppose, in the political process who have still continued to find, um, tried to find some genius behind the chaos and uh, incompetence of Trump. Um, and they'll, they'll probably defend that position to the end. They'll, they'll not switch. Uh, they'll live in hope that Trump somehow finds a way to win. But um, I think a lot of others will just say, look, the price of Trump was just too enormous, both for America and for the world. And, um, you know, we do need to have a, a sensible reset here in the United States and with global significance. And I think you'll, you'll find increasing numbers accept that view. I mean, it's hard to defend Trump on any front. And, and most recently, of course, his mismanagement of the of COVID nineteen has been um, extreme. Um, and the number of times he has said, I think the Wall Street Journal counted that he said it twenty two times that the virus will just disappear um, <coughs> without taking any substantive response. I think that's had a big impact on people's attitudes here and in the United States. I agree with Quentin's comment that, uh, that Biden's going to have to say more and do more. Some of the things they've said will frighten to some extent. Some of the climate strategy and the Green Deal will frighten some. I think the idea of raising the corporate tax rate in some areas or tax in general will be an issue. But I think there is an overwhelming mood that they just have to fix the situation as it is and the drift in democracy has been so extreme. Although Trump has kept a fairly reliable base I mean, there are a lot of uh, concerned Americans, I think, that will make sure that he doesn't stay there. And um, that will impact on us. I mean, I, I think one of the big changes will be that that Biden will be a bit of a catalyst to rekindle the climate debate in a substantive way. That combined with Johnson having uh, the responsibility for the next uh, COP and uh, already stating very tough positions in terms of where he'd like to see the UK go, we could go to a world where climate really comes a front centre issue with a sense of urgency and Biden would be a catalyst for that, I think, and that might be a very significant um, argument in the campaign eventually. That would be a very positive change indeed. Okay, and just finally, I want to turn to uh, the allegations of branch stacking in the Liberal Party that were in the that was in the news today. I don't want to go into detail about the allegations themselves, but I am interested. Perhaps if I start with you, John, on on what that what those allegations, what that story says about the health of political parties today. Well, you'd have to say that branch stacking has always been a feature of politics in Australia, more or less. It's come and gone. Um, they all do it. I think in general, if we make a general comment, the Liberal National Parties aren't anywhere near as effective at it as the Labor Party, but they all try. It tells you what's wrong with our, our, our political system, and that is that many people go into politics for the power. Uh, power is the end game, not uh, better government. Uh, power and influence is what they go in for, what they think they can enjoy, what they think they can turn to their own benefit. <clears throat> in those circumstances, um, you're seeing the worst of it from time to time. We just had a recent episode in the Labor Party. We now have got one in the Liberal Party. Um, <clears throat> you find the you know, politicians playing playing the political game on this. I mean, when when the Labor Party had its issue with um, with um, branch stacking recently and Morrison was saying this, Anthony Albanese has been totally burned by this scandal. We're fighting for jobs, they're fighting each other. And yet uh, uh, last night when uh, the television program identified the branch stacking in the Victorian Liberal Party, he said this is an organisational matter for the Victorian division of the party. I mean, that's the sort of... Uh, response you see neither side actually in the end effectively cleans it up they do try and out these people they do try and embarrass them into into changing their ways and uh, re reforming the structures but in the end politics does attract people whose end game is just power and influence and not good government i think what's really interesting about this um, branch stacking scandal is that um victoria has fairly good uh governance uh, processes around 
its pre-selections, essentially trying to manage uh, the problem of really small branches. So what they do is they actually have a sort of sliding scale. So the the more registered members there are in a branch, the fewer sort of central people selected from their sort of administrative kind of committee that is sort of elected by their state council uh, are actually involved in the process um, as a way to sort of – try to balance out those issues. And I think what is most interesting about it is that they actually randomly draw the people from the central um, committee to again kind of help manage uh, that sort of situation. But, you know, I I agree with everything that John has effectively um, said and I guess what I would add to it is that – you know, whilst branch stacking has been a feature of Australian politics for about four decades, uh, what it does show is that as party memberships decline dramatically, uh, we have one of the lowest rates of party membership in the Western democratic uh, world. Um, and as party members age, so for example, I think the last set of reports out of Victoria showed that the Victorian Liberal Party's average age of its members was 72 which is older than the Labor Party, which sits around 65. Um, But what it kind of shows is that these democratic organisations, these democratic linkages between us as citizens and them as our elected representatives who form our executive and govern us are actually really kind of breaking down and that when you don't have many members, it is much easier to take over these organisations and um, we've sort of seen similar scandals play out in the National Party, uh, in the Labor Party, in the Liberal Party because it is endemic to the fact that uh, the form of party representation we have um, no longer necessarily is fulfilling that democratic legitimacy function. And the, the real question we should be asking is, is you know, it's, it's not just about legally enforcing uh, the rules around party memberships, right, because ultimately when it becomes criminal and it is simply alleged these are allegations in this case. Where it becomes criminal, it's like a form of, of fraud, essentially. What that's, that's what's sort of going on here. But it also undermines the the integrity of um, the democratic legitimacy of these organisations, the democratic legitimacy of Parliament. That Parliament really is representative and that parties really do aggregate interests and the kinds of conversations we actually need to be having is how do we broaden the pe- like the number of people who go into politics and that conversation probably needs to move to some kind of hybrid model where we still have parties because I don't think parties are going away and parties are useful they are interest aggregators but how do we bring other people into politics as well through means that are not through party machines where it's really hard for parties, despite their best efforts, without members to to keep a high level of integrity to these processes. There have been attempts to sort of broaden the membership base of political parties, particularly in other countries. I'm thinking of you know, Jeremy Corbyn and what he did with the Labour Party there. Yes. Things like that work? Look, uh, Momentum was enormously successful at bringing people into the Labor Party and I think a lot of people would say it was disastrous for the Labor Party and disastrous for the UK if you are anti-Brexit. And so I guess what happened with Momentum and what happened with the, the Labor Party, and this is in some ways a story of the Labor Party itself, which has always sort of struggled with parties within parties, but essentially um, by opening up uh, membership uh, in the UK where you could basically become a supporter for five which gave you voting rights. Um, A whole bunch of people sort of flooded into the Labor Party um, and they were generally Corbyn supporters and it created all kinds of internal disturbances between the sort of parliamentary Labor Party, which were effectively mainstream, um, and um, Corbyn supporters who were pretty far left and effectively, as we have now seen, unelectable. And, um, you know, there's some sort of specific problems there. And so I, I guess, I guess this is the thing, right? The people that want to join parties today are not the people who joined them in 1950 when the Liberal Party was, uh, you know, five years 
old. You know, people, everyday people used to join political parties for entertainment, for its social connection. Um, you know, it was the generation of, of joiners. These were ex-servicemen. Lots of women who, who basically were stay-at-home moms who didn't have jobs joined the Liberal Party and it was their social circle and their way to contribute. The Victorian branch in particular was very active. Um, it was a very healthy uh, party organisation, something to be really very proud of. Um, but, you know, people don't want to join parties in that way anymore simply for the fact that I don't want to sign up to 40 policies of, you know, 15 of which actually make me feel deeply uncomfortable. That is how most people um, increasingly kind of feel about programmatic parties. The younger they are, the more likely they are to feel that way, which is why they don't join political parties. So as John sort of said, uh, the types of people that join these days are generally more likely to be power seeking, like that's not everyone, but that's more true, or they're very old. So they're not likely to be representatives. And so it's the narrowing of that base, the fact that they're less democratic, less linked to the community, less likely to be a proper reflection of centre-right opinion in Australia or centre-left opinion in Australia because it actually is a really tiny group of of people. And these are distortionary. Um, and what is happening in Victoria is actually just the latest in what has happened to political parties um, on the right and the left across um, the country. Each state has its own particular dynamics by what is driving it. You know, the collapse of Family First is essentially what has driven this wave in in um, in Victoria. Um, but um, this is a sort of similar pattern across the democratic world as political parties are increasingly in trouble and particularly so in this country. Indeed, lots of big questions there. But unfortunately, we've run out of time today. So that's it for this episode of Democracy Sausage. Thank you for listening. And thanks to our excellent panel, Quentin Grafton, John Hewson, and of course, Maria Taflaga for their insights and expertise. Don't forget, you can contact the team here on Twitter as Apps Policy Forum, that's A-P-P-S Policy Forum, or join the pod squad on Facebook at Policy Forum Pod. And if you're enjoying Democracy Sausage, don't forget to hit subscribe and maybe even leave us a five-star rating. I'll be back with the Democracy Sausage Extra on Thursday, where we'll be heading to the UK to chat to an outrageously good panel. You absolutely won't want to miss it. But until then, cheerio for now. Thank you. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.